if we expand our concept of the golden rule to include people in countries we've never been and people we have never met, and we look long, as the Haudenosaunee did, that the world would be a better place. And I can't see a downside to that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to At WCSU, the award-winning podcast that talks all about everything that's going on at Western Connecticut State University. Uh, Today, we'll be talking about the end of the world, which is always a good topic. (laughs) Yes. I thought we were going to talk about, uh, you know, insects and flowers. Yeah. uh, Whether the worms survived the winter. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about that, too. So we... uh, like to spend, uh, do a span of topics here at, at WCSU. Yeah, it was funny. We talked about doing this uh, episode a couple weeks ago, and it, we hadn't had any snow at all. The daffodils were poking up yes. in my yard. I was looking around going, I, you know, <laughs> what's going on here? And then right after we talked to Dr. Wagner about doing this, we got, you know, six, six inches, nine of inches of snow dumped snow, on yeah. us. And, and we're still looking for more. Yeah. Oh, yeah. As we said, we'll still have plenty of bugs this summer. Yeah, great. That's a, <laughs> we are covered in ants right now. Oh, you are? Yeah. New house, everything's great. And yeah. then we're looking around and there's just ants. So, you know, could be worse, I guess. It could be. Uh... Could be scorpions. <laughs> my uncle moved to Colorado when, uh, when my cousins were really young. And they came home one day and their house was filled with scorpions. And my aunt left and said, I'm not ever going in that house again. (laughs) And they moved back to Massachusetts. And and that was that. Yeah, It was in, I think it was a town called Salida. I've never really looked at where it was, but I think it's in the mountains. Well, whoever listens to this interview with Dr. Mitch Wagner, our biology professor, will learn that uh, our houses may be filled with scorpions soon, too. It's true. Mm Mm-hmm. And if they are, we'll get Dr. Krell back on to talk about it. <laughs> That's right. Okay, here is our talk with Dr. Mitch Wagner. Well, we invited Dr. Mitch Wagner, the senior member of the <laughs> biology department at Western Connecticut State University, to talk to us about this weird winter we've had. <laughs> It probably isn't all that weird, but it seems like it's uh, been unusual, not a lot of snow, decent amount of rain, pretty warm. Is that accurate, Mitch? Yeah. Uh, one thing to, to calibrate is that when a scientist talks about normal, they mean average. Hmm. Okay. And average, of course, is a sliding scale because as you get more detail and as things change, average changes as well. Mm -hmm. So it all depends on how you choose to calibrate or how you choose to um, to calculate what your average is. And so when scientists talk about, you know, the difference between El Nino and La Nina and what's normal, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. they're just talking about what's average. Mm-hmm. So w- this isn't a average winter, I think. It's probably safe to say I haven't really looked at the numbers, but it, well, the fact that we didn't have any significant snow until just a week or two ago, and it didn't stay long. Mm-hmm. My dog is very disappointed. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Uh, you're an expert in several things, but among them is uh, uh, critters and how they uh, adjust to something like this. As for expertise in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. So, um, and and the, one of the things about climate change, and you can cut this out later if you choose no, to, going to. Um, is that it is the broadest topic that you can possibly imagine because it's not just one particular specific thing. It's not just meteorology. It's not just climatology. Mm -hmm. It's not just ecology, which happens to be my particular field. It's all of that, plus sociology, plus history, plus politics. Politics. Right? Oh, yeah. God, God knows. And so on. And so it is broad. It is interdisciplinary. It is multidisciplinary. And a lot of the scientists who tend to be, tend to be siloed in their particular narrow field are afraid of talking about it in the public because they're not not—they're used to only talking about the things that they have published research in. Mm -hmm. You can't talk or you can't do that in, you know, in, about climate change. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's Bill McKibben up, at, up in uh, Vermont who realized that early on and started writing books and becoming an activist and all that knowing that he had to get boned up on other things. Now, what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> How do our bugs and oh, okay, other things affect, uh, affected by this unaverage winter? Well, it all depends. It all depends on the, the life histories of the organisms. After all, there are some organisms that stay active to some degree all winter. You know, the warm-blooded creatures, the birds and the, and the mammals specifically, Insects are, are a little different in that their life cycles are short, or mm. most of them are. And so they have a particular phenology. That's a, a term that ecologists use to describe the, the schedule of life history events and the timing of them. Mm. And some species of insects will go through several generations in a in a season, some of them will, especially up north in Alaska and other places like that, they'll take two or three years to, to complete. So for those who happen to go through several generations in a, in a, um, in a, in a single year, um, some of them probably didn't even know it was a warm winter because they're already done with their thing, mm -hmm. and some of them didn't. Mm -hmm. So they have they have their own ways of dealing with uh, winter, you know, animals in general. Some of them hibernate. Some of them sleep, but is not technically hibernation like bears. Mm -hmm. the, the bears who are, well, some of them are probably still around during the winter, but bears generally sleep rather than hibernate. and has to do whether, with whether they reduce their body temperature over mm. the course to, to save energy and all that. And mm -hmm. mammals uh, vary a lot between, you know, how they manage all that. Um, whereas some of them, you know, squirrels and whatnot stay active and, and, um, and probably didn't notice it unless it affected their ability to find food, mm. which pretty much was done during the, you know, the fall when they're gathering up whatever they eat. And if there's enough overall precipitation, which I think there was this year, at least close enough, 
That the food production probably that doesn't affect the food production. Well, negatively, it, won't, right? it won't be during the winter because you know most of the plants are are not growing actively in the winter time. They have their own way of 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 um, going to bed mm -hmm. for the winter, whether it be dropping leaves or or becoming inactive in some fashion. There are some plants that'll stay somewhat green and active. Some of the mosses will come mm. and grow depending on whether there was um, rain recently and they can they can kind of hunker down through the temperatures and all that sort of stuff. Hmm. But it, you know, it varies a lot. Um, the, the effects of climate change are, unless you have a horrendously strong heat wave or horrendously strong cold wave. And, you know, there are both of those things going on. I just saw that Washington Post this morning had an article on a heat wave in Greenland, in northern Greenland. Mm -hmm. So there was actually hotter in northern Greenland because of one of the weird um, polar vortex things than hotter in Greenland than it was in Copenhagen. <laughs> and the scientist is that was reporting this was Danish. That's why you use Copenhagen mm. as a as a benchmark. And it sometimes what happens is that a, a chunk of warm air from the temperate zone will break off and move much farther north than you would expect to find it. And that happens in Alaska sometimes. I remember when I lived in Alaska and going to grad school up there and I'd be talking to my dad back in Missouri, when we were having a particularly warm spell in the winter. He was having a particularly cold spell in Missouri and vice versa. Mm, that's interesting. Mm, kind of a seesaw thing. And that happens um, on average. That's a kind of an average thing, right? It happens every so often. Yeah. Whether we think uh, we're destroying the climate or not, mm -hmm. uh, that's been happening for a long time. Depends on the severity. I mean, what, what climate change does is it adds more heat into the system mm. so that the um, weather will be more chaotic, which by which we mean unpredictable. Mm -hmm. And so weird stuff happens, like the, the heat dome. Well, if, I don't know if it's a heat dome, but the heat... Uh, the, the hot spell they're having in Greenland. Mm -hmm. Occasionally there will be a heat dome in a place where you don't expect to see a heat dome. Mm -hmm. You expect to see heat domes in Texas or someplace like that, but occasionally they'll show up in in northern Siberia or someplace like that, which cause all sorts of strange things to occur. Mm -hmm. You know, like there was, <clears throat> back in the early 20th century, there was a anthrax outbreak in reindeer in um, that the, a peninsula in northern uh, Siberia near a city called Norilsk, I think. Don't quote me on the city. But um, Timark Peninsula. And the native people up there who are reindeer herders um, lost most of their most of their herd mm -hmm. because of anthrax, mm -hmm. which is a disease that is oh, that lives in the soil and occasionally gets up in the lungs of and the in the bodies of mammals and causes them problems of death, mm -hmm. even humans. Mm -hmm. And so, um, when all these all these uh, reindeer they had is difficult to bury them up, and there's not mm -hmm. firewood up there to cremate them, and so they had to basically dig shallow graves and make mounds. Hmm. 
Well, that worked fine, and these things stayed frozen until 10 years ago or less when uh, there was a heat dome, a convection cell that warmed that up crazy, war much warmer than you would expect in the summertime. And the dead reindeer thawed, and the anthrax came back to life and made a whole bunch of people sick, killed yeah. a bunch more reindeer, and, and killed one child. Mm. And so it's kind of a zombie disease sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the kinds of things that can happen with uh, climate change. Yeah, and that's exactly what it is. Those things become more common, mm -hmm. more, you know, you're loading the dice is what you're doing. Right. So this uh, warmer than average winter that we've been having, can we tr attribute that to climate change? You can say it's probably made, it was made more likely with climate change. Mm -hmm. You cannot, attribution is a tough thing. And there are scientists who are working on how to, how to accurately attribute a particular storm, a particular season aberration to climate change. Mm -hmm. And there are statistical ways to do it, which I'm not real current on. That's one of those things that I can't keep in my brain. Mm -hmm. But uh, generally what they say when they report these things is that um, you can say that climate change with all the extra heat and all the other things going on makes certain events more common. Hmm. It doesn't mean that they won't happen at some point anyway, but we can expect them to happen more often. Mm -hmm. So there you go. And we've been seeing some Weird stuff. Weird stuff, right? Yeah. Like on the west coast of the United States yeah. this winter. Um, I guess the uh, summers with all the uh, wildfires out there and across the country. Yeah, I, I have an old friend. Uh, when I was a kid, I spent a year in Thailand as a foreign exchange student. And she was in my group of American kids there. I, so I knew her then. And she lives in Chico. Oh, yeah. And... Uh, northern, sort of northern California, mm -hmm. northeast of San Francisco, I believe. Mm -hmm. And uh, so she's been giving me reports. You know, she was giving me reports um, when they were having all the fires, and now they're having a lot of snow, and mm -hmm. and it's all just not outside of living memory, but happening in in greater frequency than than anyone remembers. Right. I was reading a book about a fire in some place like Wisconsin or something that destroyed several towns and was seemingly uh, erupted out of nothing. But when you look at the historical evidence, all the temperatures and the heat, uh, the air, there was probably a heat dome over it, mm -hmm. and uh, the winds, et cetera, just a perfect uh, recipe for a horrible wildfire that destroyed, killed hundreds of people, et cetera. And uh, people out there, wherever it was, still remember it. And I guess it was near Green Bay. And uh, then, but you're right, that's outside of normal or human memory, uh, living memory, except it's happening all the time now all mm -hmm. in certain places. Yeah, and it's happening in more places mm. more often mm -hmm. and and in larger scale and lasting longer and more severe and all that kind of stuff. And we humans are don't remember things that happened before we are alive unless someone bothered to write them down or grandma told us a story. Right. 
And so we have to um, we, we have to work in order to understand things that happened in the past like that, which is why anecdotes are of limited use. That's why we have data. We have to use the figure out ways to look into the past, and we can do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just have to look at the best way to do it, so that we have actual numbers that we can we can analyze statistically, run them through our models, and see how close what is happening today is to what was happening back then. Mm-hmm. And um, so you know, it's uh, it, it is. Our limited memory and our limited lifespans is kind of an impediment for some people understanding and accepting what's going on mm-hmm. because they'll always say, well, you know, we've always had hot years. We've always had cold years. We've always had this and that. And that's true. But here's the data. Right. And so that's where scientists come in. Mm-hmm. And that's how we ruin Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> Mel Goldstein, who was the uh, meteorologist mm-hmm. yep, who used to teach her, yes, yep. uh, used to say to me, uh, you know, the average is kind of meaningless on a year-to-year basis because you have a year like this. <coughs> Next year, statistically, could very easily be colder or wetter or snowier than, uh, than usual. Uh, but the average over the two years will meet in the middle, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Is so this year isn't going to predict next year necessarily, even though we know more than about the climate and how it changes than we ever have. Uh, do you think that um, this winter we've had will that will notice changes in the summertime or the springtime? <coughs> what we're going to notice, I think, <clears throat> is due to a shift in the El Nino southern oscillation now. I'm not an expert in meteorology, Mm -hmm. but uh, I'm picking this up from people who are. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is a particular, there's there's a number of reasons why this year is different than last year is different than next year. Mm. And they include the fact that air and water move chaotically. They have to do with random volcanoes. They have to do with El Nino. And they have to do with, and I cannot remember the fourth one, but, you know. Um, so one of the things that is likely to to happen is that well first of all El Nino La Nina that particular uh, pattern has to do with the location of high and low weather uh, systems in the South Pacific Mm -hmm. and they affect everything Um, years where we have an El there's an El Nino conditions in the South Pacific we are less likely to have hurricanes Hmm. We're likely to have fewer of them. Hmm. Years when you have La Nina conditions down there, we're likely to have more. Now, generally speaking, if you look at the the trend, and I'm waving my arms in the face drawing a graph, hmm. which you can't see, uh, but you see, you know, the line of temperatures going up, mm-hmm. which it is. Not every year is warmer than the last, mm-hmm. but the trend is clear. Mm-hmm. Um those years which are El Ninos tend to be warmer than the trend. And those that are La Ninas tend to be cooler than the trend. And it all has to do with how much cold weather is, cold water is coming up the, um, the western coast of South America. Mm-hmm. 
And that all has to do with whether the high-pressure systems over Tahiti or over New Guinea <laughs> or vice versa, mm-hmm. you know. And so all those things affect weather everywhere, okay. And some and under one set of conditions, you'll have a rainy area. You'll, it'll be rainy in Central Africa, and on the other one, you'll be dry in Central Africa. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and so the El Nino La Nina can can be more severe, less severe, can last longer, can last shorter. And we have been in a La Nina year for the last three years. Hmm. Okay. Now La Ninas tend to be the lower part of the trend. So the lower values in the average that is climbing, hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. We're likely to be shifting into an El Nino. The La Nina we just had was the fifth warmest year in history, hmm. going back uh, to 1800 hmm. is when they, you know, we didn't, we had to, re, we have to recreate the data average, average earth temperature for 1800 because we didn't have satellites then. But we have ways to do that with a certain amount of, of, of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. But, um, <clears throat> but we are shifting after a uh, fifth warmest year in history. Uh, that's a La Nina we're shifting into an El Nino. Mm-hmm. And that means chances are good. Not, not a, it's not a lock, but chances are good that we're going to have a really hot year or two coming up. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a concern to me anyway, because sometimes we will have heat domes and things like that occur here. And sometimes we have a lot of rain that soaks up the the ground. There's a set of conditions called wet bulb 35, Hmm. which you would expect to find more often in the tropics, but is not out of the question in a place like Connecticut. And that wet bulb 35 is a combination of of weather conditions, a 35 degrees Celsius high, which is 95 Fahrenheit, combined with 100% relative humidity. Now, at relative at high relative humidities, <coughs> you have your body has a harder time evaporating its sweat, mm-hmm. and so its natural ability to cool itself is hampered. So, at 100% relative humidity, you're 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 not cooling yourself off. And you reach the temperature where you reach the physiological uh, upper limit of what humans can stand. And so a young person who's acclimatized buck naked with a fan on him in the shade under wet bowl 35 is going to be, he's stressed Mm. and in danger. Mm -hmm. Now, if you put old folks in that mix, you know. Um, now, normally we don't have 95s here in Connecticut, but if we do have a hot day that just happens to follow a big rainstorm where there's lots of moisture in the soil to evaporate, humidity is going to be high, and some of the folks, <coughs> excuse me, some of the folks who are <clears throat> have a harder time than a young person buck naked in the shade um, will um, will have a hard time with that, and I. You know, in in my report to the president, I suggested that one of the things that maybe we should consider is making plans for um, how we can help the local community survive those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, make just make some contingency plans for it. Right, cooling centers and things yeah, like yeah. that. Right. You know, they'll you know bring people into the gyms and let them cool down with the air conditioning. And right. All that. Hmm. 
So that's something to look forward to. Yeah, I mean, there's, no, I mean, it has already. What Bolt Thirty Five has already happened in places like northern India, where uh, because of the location of the Himalayas, you tend to have heat domes, and in parts of the Persian Gulf, which are naturally humid and hot anyway. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you can get into air conditioning, you're okay. But if you can't, then you're right. not. Not everybody has that. You're not right. everyone has air conditioning. Or they want to go outside. Yeah. Mm. So anyway, I mean, those are those are sorts of things which have a low probability as an individual event. But when, you know, it, none of those things are out of the question for mm-hmm. a place like Connecticut. Right. We have rain. We have hot days. If you put them together, mm-hmm. waving my arms here. You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So... Uh... You've told the president of the university. Uh, who else should we be telling about this? <clears throat> well, I mean, it it should not be a scare thing. It shouldn't be, <gasps> you know, That's watch out, I'm watch out for now. watch out, watch out for the heat, the you know the the heat domes and rain and all that. Yeah. Um, but we should have contingencies in mind about what we do and how we take care of Granny when that happens. Mm-hmm. After all. <clears throat> 1955. Were you here in 1955? Not in Connecticut. I was. No, I, not on Earth. No. I, 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 yeah, I wasn't born until 59. So um, in 1955, in August, there were two uh, hurricanes that came through mm. that hit Connecticut or, or dumped a lot of rain on Connecticut three days apart. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, the likelihood of three of two hurricanes doing that is pretty slim. Mm-hmm. Okay, but they did it, and um, that you had the first hurricane dumping enough water on there to soak up the soil, so that the second rain from the second hurricane could do nothing but run off and go into the streams and the Housatonic River and Connecticut River. I believe were both way above flood stage. Yeah, the Chapog. Yeah, yeah, and there were flooding. You know, there was floods in Danbury. There were floods in Waterbury, and they yeah, were pretty severe. Main forms. Street and yeah, yeah. Danbury. So those sorts of things are not things that you can expect to happen. I mm-hmm. can't predict, the, but they happened. Mm-hmm. So. And they, as you were saying, they'll happen more often now, more likely to happen mm-hmm. more yeah, often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have less danger in where we are in Danbury, Connecticut, from sea level rise in the short term because we are at higher elevation than sea level is likely to affect itself. Mm-hmm. However, sea level rise on top of hurricanes, that's a different story. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Storm mm-hmm. surge and all that. Uh, we have the benefit also of having Long Island there as kind of a, a mm. buffer of sorts. That's true. Yeah. The people who live on Long Island, though, it's not really a consolation of them. They still get flooded out. Yeah. Well, and remember Sandy. We we were here for Sandy, you yes. and I. Yes. And uh, that one, you know, was a, a weird, unpredictable storm that just happened to kind of meld in with the Nor'easter which is a different kind of cyclonic storm. And although Connecticut didn't get hammered badly, we had refugees from New, in, from New Jersey mm-hmm. I, that were living in New Milford right after mm-hmm. that, I remember. Yeah, because New Jersey was flattened yeah. in a lot of it. Climate refugees are going to be a big thing. That is uh, another thing that we need to be 
psychologically, materially prepared for. Uh, mm -hmm. We have a history in this country of climate refugees. My great uncle Thurbert and my great uncle Cecil, honest to God, that was their name. <laughs> it was Missouri, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, they lived in, well, see, my father, my grandfather was from Hontubby, Oklahoma, and he married a, a woman from Cooter, Missouri. <laughs> it gets better. And um, <laughs> and anyway, there my my great uncle, I mean my my grandfather's brothers um, were Dust Bowl Lokis. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. and during the Dust Bowl, what was that but a people buying land and planting wheat under, under conditions which they thought were permanent conditions, mm -hmm. but they were just particularly good position, uh, um, good conditions for about a decade, mm -hmm. and then. We went back to the normal, and it was a dust bowl. In the meantime, people had uh, cut, had broken up the sod, and so there wasn't anything at all holding that sod down, and it blew. Mm -hmm. and it was a disaster. It was a disaster like North America had not seen before. Mm -hmm. And uh, luckily, the wind was blowing west to east because it blew that dust and hit Washington, D.C. right when the, um, the Congress was voting on funding the Soil Conservation <laughs> Service. <laughs> it's really a, quite a story. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, we, most of us probably read The Graves of Wrath, so we, we know that Americans migrating away from a climate disaster are not necessarily going to be met with open arms. Right. They weren't. No. And there were climate refugees in California for the uh, last several years as towns got yeah. incinerated. Yeah, that's right. And that will happen. We had climate refugees in New Milford after Sandy. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And so this is just another thing that we can expect to become more used to over time mm -hmm. because the severity of storms both hot, wet, and dry, windy, rainy, whatever, are going to be increased, and they're going to act more randomly from compared to our expectations. And, and it could, I'm thinking, be even harder on some place like Connecticut because I keep telling people, you know, Connecticut, even though we complain about the winter and sometimes it's hot in the summer, it's relatively uh, mild overall yeah. compared mm -hmm. to, say, Nebraska, yep. uh, which is hideous all times of year. And uh, the so when it starts to vary here and we get those extra hurricanes or colder wind, more blizzards or whatever, it's going to be harder on us. We have to prepare to be refugees. Yeah. Well, there was a time, I think, when we were, in truth, part of New England um, in terms of, you know, farm communities and mm -hmm. weather and all that sort of stuff. And mm -hmm. now we're psychologically more part of the megalopolis. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and we will, we, we, will, we will have more extremes. That's just, you know, to mm -hmm. be expected. And that is true of everywhere, including Greenland, including Antarctica. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Well, you've been talking. You are our uh, weather climate expert or climate change expert for in Connecticut, as far as we know, the only one. The um, uh, so you've been speaking a lot around the community and in the state, spreading the word. How's that going? Well, I I, I get re I get invited back, mm. so I must be reasonably good at it. Yes. 
Um, if I really was bad at it, I suspect that it would have died a long time ago. But and, and there isn't a lot of other folks um, doing it. There occasionally I'll hear about a there's a professor at Southern who um, not Southern Western Eastern who who did a talk and I heard about it and I tried contacting him and I don't know. Busy or something. <laughs> that was his one talk. Yeah, that was maybe. I don't know. I didn't get that far actually. <laughs> oh. um, I I do it because I have because I enjoy doing it and uh, it's a topic I like talking about. Even though that it's you know it's it's a tough thing to talk about. There's there's a lot of emotion associated with hearing about something that reasonably potentially could end human civilization. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that's going to happen, you know, next week or anything. I'm just saying that, you know, potentially in a generation or two, it could get really bad. Yeah. And, you know, I, one thing I've noticed about our students here at Western is that there are more of them coming to school, starting college with a basic idea of what climate change is about, being very anxious about it. They mm-hmm. talk to each, uh, each other. They talk am- among themselves. And, you know, there are some of them have talked to me about it because I've made an effort to try to connect with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, because anxiety is tough, especially when you're 18 or 19 right. years old. And, mm-hmm. and you don't really, and, and to deal with that is important. And it's important in your mentors. And being a mentor, I take that particular that particular job uh, particularly seriously. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and um, and so I talk to them. I talk to them in classes. I make a point of in the courses that deal with the environment, which is most of them anymore for me. Um, I talk about, you know, I have open-ended discussions, you know, sessions about what kind of world do you want. All right, what do you think you're, is going to be necessary to get that world? Not to scare them, but to mm-hmm. get them thinking constructively. And, you know, it's a matter of emotional intelligence. Uh, for them, they need to develop it. And I would say our faculty probably need to develop it as well mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I think some of them are getting the idea. I can, Anna Visi in the philosophy department has certainly, being a philosopher, that probably pre- pre-adapts her for for that sort of stuff, and mm-hmm. and Shane Murphy and Psych, mm-hmm. you know, they they have, you know, they have had these discussions as well. Um, but it is something that we need to show some care for our students in providing mentorship in that regard, insofar mm-hmm. as we can. Right. Yeah. It's not something in the student handbook, but it's an important mm-hmm. part of. Uh, what you do here. Yeah, I mean, if your students are coming in and saying, geez, I mean, it, if the world's going to end, why am I in college? <laughs> you know, that is not our in their best interest or our best interest either. And so we want to help them through mm-hmm. uh, that particular, those feelings. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if we can, some, some we can't. And, you know, people, they're kids after all. They're right. young, they're inexperienced, <laughs> and as we were at that age. And, mm-hmm. and uh we help them deal with it. I think that is going to be increasingly uh, part of the what makes a damn good professor mm-hmm. because it's not something that we learned to do in grad school. Mm-mm. It was not something that we had professors do for us by and large. Yep. And so it's something we have to learn how to 
how to do that. And um, so um, I talk about that kind of thing. I talk about climate change as a moral issue, because it is. I talk about Albert Camus' response to the, his character's response to the plague in the novel, The Plague, in Algeria, where he says that the thing, and I'm, I'm misquoting here, that, that what, what the way to deal with the plague is through human decency. Hmm. And uh, honestly, I think that is, the, in fact, the answer to climate change as well. Mm-hmm. Human decency and empathy <clears throat> and, um, you know, uh, you know I, I can talk to my students about the golden rule, and it does not conflict with anybody's religion. It doesn't conflict with anybody without a religion. Mm-hmm. It's just an ethical premise mm-hmm. that you you treat people the way you want to be treated. Mm-hmm. And I, I throw in the seven-generation principle that uh, some Native American um, groups have used forever. You know, the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois up in, um, were a very organized group, several tribal groups that uh, formed a confederation. Mm-hmm. Um, they made their their decisions as a group based on what is best for the seven generations to come. Mm. And I have to think that if we expand our concept of the golden rule to include people in countries we've never been and people we have never met, and we look long as the Haudenosaunee did, Mm -hmm. that the world would be a better place. And Mm -hmm. I can't see a downside to that. Personally, no. you know, that may mean that someone who is making a killing selling this or that uh, is making less of a killing and he has to figure out a different way mm-hmm. to make a living. But I don't necessarily see a downside in that either. Um, and um, one of the things I think that we as academics can do is we can frame these topics when it is justified. Um, in in ethical form, mm-hmm. so that these students of ours, these mentees, will be able to make good decisions because they will have had their heads and their hearts prepared for that. Yeah, I love that. So uh, we started out by asking whether we're going to have more mosquitoes this summer. <laughs> and, uh, well, it's all the same. It's it all is, the same yeah. story because, you know, climate change is associated with environmental justice and, and, and ethics mm-hmm. and human decency, for God's sake, and, and all these other things that make us worth the earth, you know, not wanting to throw us in a volcano. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it's all part of that. And this is another reason, I think, maybe that scientists particularly are a little bit scared of touchy-feely emotional things. Hmm. Maybe so. Yeah. Thank you for not being scared of it. Yeah. Well, it's just, you know. And thanks for everything you do here. Well, thank you for thank you for appreciating it because, (laughs) you know, you know, universities are, you know, Mm -hmm. you just don't it. This is a change which is coming. And. For a long time, I was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. I'm not anymore. Mm-hmm. I have colleagues who are ever bit as concerned about this stuff as I am and are out there um, 
giving public talks and mm-hmm. and so on. Not they haven't been added as long as I have, but mm-hmm. so they're not as well known yet. But they will be, mm-hmm. you know, because you know, so I'm not going to live. I'm not going to you know teach forever. At some point, I'll want to. Mm-hmm. Go do something else, but not not in a while, not for a while. That's good. Mm. So, to our listeners, if you hear about uh, Dr. Mitch Wagner speaking out there about climate change, make sure you go and see. He's got he's handing me something. The eighth annual series of lectures for the general public on climate change. At oh, it's this month, March twenty seventh. Sorry, March 22nd, March 29th, April 5th, April 12th, April 19th. Wow, that's great. They're sponsored by the Jane Goodall Center. Yes, which is here. And the talks are given by professors in conjunction with a student. Hmm. And so um, we have, for the first time, first year, we have a chemistry professor who's going to be giving a talk. And we have sociologists and three of us are biology uh, professors at this point. But we have our students who are giving part of the talk, too. So Mm -hmm. they get the experience of standing up in front of a group and talking about hard things. Yes. And the as we just kind of alluded to, the topics range from things like climate and toxic cyanobacteria and light heat and the chemistry of combustion products to a discussion of hope, which is led by Dr. Mitch Wagner and Lindsay Kirkness. Yep. So that's good. It's all in the science building, 7 to 8 p.m. every each one of these, right? Mm-hmm. Very convenient. We have plenty of parking. Let me tell you about Lindsay Kirkness. Oh. She was a... Uh, a a student at the University of Vermont. She's from Connecticut, mm-hmm. this area, and she was disappointed because University of Vermont, at least at that time, did not have any any classes on climate change. Mm. So she transferred down here to study climate change wow. as, as a biology teacher mm-hmm. or a student. Good for her. Yeah. Good for us. Yeah. All right. So we'll go and see her for that. Go to see that one mm-hmm. for her as well. Mm. Great. Yeah. More people with passion about this. Yeah. Thank you, Mitch, for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. We'll have you on again. Yeah. Well, Pete, I thought it was interesting that uh, Mitch Wagner started by talking about averages since uh, I'm very average and uh, we're a very average pair. Everything. Yeah, everything about us is is pretty average. Yeah, which is okay. In fact, when you think about climate change, average is probably the best uh, place to be. Yeah, yeah, that was interesting. The, uh, you know, what you were saying about Dr. Mel and how this year might be crazy one way and next year might be crazy the other way, but when you look at it mm-hmm. longer term, it's all kind of yeah. average. When you're going through it, that season, it seems strange and interminable, but when you live through it through enough of them you think oh yeah there was that crazy winter where we had a hundred inches of snow yeah. in our lifetime yep yes. didn't think we were going to go there but uh it was great yes that's what happens when you come to western connecticut state university and when you listen to at wcsu yeah i'll find uh, a link to all of those talks he was mentioning and we'll uh, put it up on the description of this episode and you can also i'm sure find it from the uh westcon website hmm. uh presumably on the biology page there'll be a link to that yeah. but uh, we'll make sure well that's above average work Pete. thank oh, you thank you <laughs> exceeding expectations every day that's right 
So everyone, this is at WCSU. I'm Paul Steinmetz. He's Pete Puccio, and we'll see you next week. At WCSU is a production of WCSU Media, engineered by Peter Puccio and produced by Scott Volpe. Listen and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at WCSU Podcasts, and on the university's Facebook and Twitter pages. And feel free to reach out to us by email at podcasts at wcsu.edu. Thanks for listening.